Please note, this podcast is a little racy in spots. If you have a delicate constitution and choose to continue listening, good for you. From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hello, my name is David Sedaris, and this is a story that I had in The New Yorker a while ago. And the working title for the story was On the Road. And just before we went to press, my editor called and said that they had just used that title for something else, so he proposed my big box book tour. And that sounded bulky to me. So I wrote him back and said, what about author, author? But I made the mistake of putting the question mark inside the quotation marks, and so they printed it as author, author? So this is author, author? If anything should be bracketed by matching bookends, I suppose it's an author tour. The ones I'd undertaken in the past had begun in one independent or chain store and ended, a month or so later, in another. The landscape, though, has changed since then, and it's telling that on this latest tour, I started and finished at a Costco. The first one I went to was in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I was spending the weekend with my sister Lisa just gearing up for six weeks of travel, when her husband Bob expressed a need for light bulbs. Anyone game for a quick ride to Costco, he asked. And before he could even find his keys, I was panting, dog-like, beside the front door. Living in cities, it's easy to avoid the big-box superstores. Their merciless lighting, their stench of rubber and cheap-molded plastic. It's not the way I normally like to shop, At Costco, though, I'd found these displays of pain relievers. Anison, Bayer, Tylenol. Eight major brands were represented. Pills were paired into single-serving envelopes, then stapled in rows to a bright sheet of poster board. It looked like something you'd see behind the counter at a gas station. There, the packets might cost $2 each, but here the entire display, maybe a hundred, hundred and fifty doses, went for just twelve bucks. At home, I'd buy a bottle of bufferin or ibuprofen and leave it at that. But when I'm on tour, it's packets I need. Not for myself, but to give as gifts to the people who have come to see me. Say it's someone's birthday or anniversary. I always offer the shampoos and conditioners taken from my hotels, but they provide only so many, and with a good-sized crowd, you're empty-handed before you know it. Adults get something for special occasions— but the bulk of my presents go to teenagers, who qualify by virtue of their very existence. Real fun is right at their fingertips, but instead of taking bong hits in a stolen car or getting pregnant in a neighbor's tool shed, they've come to a bookstore to hear a middle-aged man read out loud, and for that they deserve a token of my gratitude. The beauty of pain relievers is that they're light and easy to pack. On top of that, they're actually useful. Here you are, I'll say to a 16-year-old. Put this in your purse or glove compartment and think of me the next time you get a hangover. For this latest tour, my gifts were pretty paltry. I'd bought eight dozen safety pins in Greece, and while they were foreign, they didn't look much different from what you could get in the States. Ditto the German band-aids. So when Bob mentioned Costco, I felt that all my problems had been solved. As with every other big-box store in Winston-Salem, It took 15 minutes to drive there and another 15 minutes to cross the parking lot. If the building seemed large from the outside, inside it was twice as big, the kind of space that has its own weather. 
The cards, too, were slightly oversized and made me appear even smaller than I actually am. Pushing one toward the hardware section, my brother and I looked like a pair of twelve-year-olds, the sort with that disease that speeds up the aging process and leaves them wizened and tragic. This store didn't have the light bulbs Bob wanted, so we trudged on to the drug section, which proved equally disappointing. Pain relievers were in ten-gallon jars rather than packets, and so I looked around for another gift that a teenager might appreciate. I wanted something light and individually wrapped, and settled, finally, upon a gross of condoms, which came in a box the size of a cinder block. It was a lot of protection, but not a lot of weight, and I liked that. All right, I said to Bob. I think these should do the trick. Putting them in the cart, I thought nothing of it, but a moment later, walking down the aisle with my 59-year-old brother-in-law, I started feeling patently, almost titanically gay. Maybe I was imagining things, but it seemed as if people were staring at us, people in families mostly, led by thrifty and disapproving parents who looked at what we were buying and narrowed their eyes in judgment. You homosexuals, their faces seemed to say. Is that all you ever think about? My brother-in-law is around my height with thick, graying hair, a matching mustache, and squarish, wire-rimmed glasses. I'd never imagined him as gay, much less as my boyfriend, but now I couldn't stop. We've got to get something else in this cart, I told him. Bob disappeared into the acreage reserved for produce and returned a minute later with a four-pound box of strawberries. This somehow made us look even gayer. After anal sex, we like shortcake, read the cartoon bubble now floating over our heads. Something else, I said. We've got to get something else. Bob, oblivious, looked up at the rafters and thought for a moment. I guess I could use some olive oil. Forget it, I told him, my voice a bark. Let's just pay up and go. Can we do that, please? I'd later wonder what the TSA inspectors must have thought. My tour began, and every few days, upon arriving in some new city, I'd find a slip of paper in my suitcase, the kind they throw in after going through all your stuff. Five dress shirts, three pairs of pants, underwear, a top kit full of band-aids and safety pins, two neckties, and several hundred rubbers. What sort of person does the mind cobble together from these ingredients? As the weeks passed, my suitcase grew more and more conventional. I've got something for you, I'd say to a teenager. It's nothing huge, just a little something to show that I care. The kids who went to good schools would roll their eyes. I get those in the health room, they told me. And in the voice of a person whose upbringing was so fundamentally different that he may as well have been raised by shepherds, I would say, really? For free? Unlike a lot of authors I know, I enjoy my book tours. Love them, as a matter of fact. That said, I'm in a fortunate position and have been able to eliminate the parts that don't agree with me, the picture-taking, for instance. People all have cameras on their cell phones now, and figuring, I guess, that they might as well aim them at something, they'd ask me to stand and pose a good thirty times a night. This wasn't an inconvenience so much as an embarrassment. You can do better than me, I'd tell them. And when they insisted that they really couldn't, I'd feel even worse. Thus, at readings, 
There's now a notice propped atop my book signing table. Sorry, it announces, but we don't allow photos. This makes it sound like it's a store's idea, a standard policy like no eating fudge in the fine arts section. If it's their rule, I guess I have to go along with it, I tell people, sighing as if I were really disappointed. With the picture taking out of the way, I'm completely free to enjoy myself, which I generally do, and immensely. Every night after the half-hour reading and the twenty or so minutes of question and answer, I'll sit and talk to hundreds of strangers. This fellow, for instance, who I met on my first day in Toronto. I liked his glasses, and after asking where he had gotten them, we fell onto the topic of corrective surgery. I hear that you have to remain conscious during the procedure, he told me, and that when the laser hits its target, you can actually smell your own eyeball. Sizzling. I thought about this for days, just as I thought of the special ed teacher I met in Pittsburgh. You know, I said, I hear those words and automatically think handicapped or learning disabled, but aren't a lot of your students just assholes? You got it, she said. Then she told me about a kid, last day of class, who wrote on the blackboard, Mrs. Johnson is a cockmaster. I was impressed because I'd never heard that term before. She was impressed because the boy had spelled it correctly. For hours each night I would talk to people, asking pretty much whatever I wanted. The trick, of course, is to match the right person with the right question. Take this young woman I met in Boston a few years back. I'd been signing for almost six hours, and when she finally stepped up to the table, my mind went blank. When, um, when did you last touch a monkey? I asked. I expected never, or it's been years, but instead she took a step back, saying, Oh, can you smell it on me? The young woman's name was Jennifer, and it turned out that she worked for Helping Hands, an organization that trains monkeys to work as slaves for paralyzed people. At her invitation, I visited her facility outside of Boston and spent a pleasant afternoon having my pockets picked by some of the cleverer students. On my most recent tour, my questions were pretty standard. What was the last reading you attended? Who were you going to use this condom on? If you stepped out of the shower and saw a leprechaun standing at the base of your toilet, would you scream, or would you innately understand that he meant you no harm? Late at night, I'd return to my room, scoop up the shampoos and conditioners replaced as part of the turndown service, and record everything that I had learned. Not just the stories that people had told me, but all the ephemera, the names of local restaurants and hair salons seen from the car window. One hotel with its Martini Tuesdays, another with its Fajita Fridays. In Baton Rouge, a woman asked me to name her donkey. Stephanie, I said. And later that night, too tired to sleep, I laid awake and wondered if I'd spoken too quickly. In 2004, I offered priority signing to smokers, the reason being that because they didn't have as long to live, their time was more valuable. This year, my special treatment was reserved for men who stood five foot six and under. That's right, my little friends, I announced. There'll be no waiting in line for you. It seemed unfair to restrict myself to men, 
and so I included any woman with braces on her teeth. "'What about us?' asked the pregnant and the lame. And because it was my show, I told them to wait their fucking turn. After a month in the United States, I flew to Canada to finish my tour. On my first night in Toronto, I read at a chain store called Indigo. That event ended at midnight, and the following afternoon, after half a dozen radio and print interviews, I was taken to Costco, not to buy pain relievers and condoms but to meet my readers, or rather, not meet them. My appearance had been advertised by way of a flyer and was to last no longer than an hour. Shoppers passed with their enormous carts, most loaded with children, who gaped through the bars at this ridiculous nobody, sitting by himself at a folding table. Making it just that much more pathetic was the sign next to me, the big one reading... No photos, please. It would be my greatest pleasure not to take your picture, I imagine people thinking. I mean, really, just who the hell do you think you are? It's a question well-suited to a cavernous space. There your eyes can roam heavenward, past the signs for frozen food and automotive supplies, past the arrow pointing to the cash registers, and on to that boundless parking lot, which leads, eventually... To home. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.